You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining this special edition of the American Revolution. This week, we've got a guest episode for you. Rich Napolitano of the Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs podcast recently did an episode about John Paul Jones. Rich and I both recently joined the Into History Network, which has given me an excuse to listen to a lot of the other really great history podcasts that are out there. All of these podcasts are available free wherever you get your podcasts. But if you have any interest in joining the Into History Network, you can access all of our podcasts ad-free, as well as some special content. Go to intohistory.com for more details. I really wanted to let you know more about shipwrecks and sea dogs, so enjoy today's podcast episode about John Paul Jones. April 22nd, 1778. Whitehaven, England. At midnight, I left the ship with two boats and 31 volunteers. When we reached the outer pier, the day began to dawn. I would not, however, abandon my enterprise, but dispatched one boat under Mr. Hall and Lieutenant Wallingford with the necessary combustibles to set fire to the shipping on the north side of the harbor, while I went with the other party to attempt the south side. I was successful in scaling the walls and spiking up all the cannon on the first fort. Finding that the sentinels were shut up in the guardhouse, we secured them without their being hurt. I took with me one man only, Mr. Green, and spiked all the cannon in the southern fort distant from the other a quarter of a mile. On my return from this business, I naturally expected to see the fire of the ships on the north side, as well as to find my own party with everything in readiness to set fire to the shipping in the south. Instead of this, I found the boat under Mr. Hill and Mr. Wallingford returned and the party in some confusion, their light having burnt out at the instant it became necessary. On the strangest fatality, my own party were in the same situation, the candles being all burnt out. The day too came on apace, yet I would by no means retreat while any hopes of success remained. Having again placed sentinels, a light was obtained from a house at a distance from the town and fire was kindled in the steerage of a large ship, which was surrounded by at least a hundred and fifty others. There was, besides, from seventy to a hundred large ships in the north arm of the harbor, a ground clear of the water and divided from the rest only by a stone pier of a ship's height. I should have kindled fires in other places if the time had permitted. As it did not, our care was to prevent the one kindled from being easily extinguished. After some search, a barrel of tar was found, and poured into the flames which now ascended from all the hatchways. The flames had already caught the rigging and began to ascend the mainmast. The inhabitants began to appear in thousands and individuals ran hastily toward us. I stood between them with a pistol in my hand and ordered them to retire which they did with precipitation. The sun was a full hour above the horizon 
and as sleep no longer ruled the world, it was time to retire. We re-embarked without opposition, having released a number of prisoners as our boats could not carry them. After all my people had embarked, I stood upon the pier for a considerable time, yet no one advanced. I saw all the eminences around the town covered with amazed inhabitants. This was the report submitted by Captain John Paul Jones of the United States Continental Navy, following his daring raid on Whitehaven, England, the very town where Jones began his career at age 13. His name would become synonymous with the devil himself throughout Great Britain. To the American upstarts and to the French, he was a celebrated hero. Captain John Paul Jones, today, on Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs. John Paul Jones is a man of polar opposite reputations. To Americans, he is a hero of the Revolution and called the father of the American Navy. But to those in Great Britain, he is thought of as a traitor and a pirate. A quick content note, this episode briefly describes the Atlantic slave trade. Nothing described in this episode is meant to glorify, support, or endorse the enslavement of human beings. It is, sadly, part of our world's history and will be discussed in the context of the time period. John Paul Jones began his days on July 6, 1747, in Kirkbean, a tiny seaside village in the southwest of Scotland. He was the fourth of seven children to John Paul and Jean Duff, although two of his siblings died during infancy. His birth name was simply John Paul, Jones would be added later. The family lived at Arbigland Estate, where his father was the head gardener, although young John Paul spent much of his time at the port of Carsethorn on Solway Firth whenever his father allowed. The adventurous boy spent his days looking at the ships and dreaming of adventure. He would make his way onto the decks, talk to the sailors, and poke around, marveling at the hulking vessels. His future was on the sea, not on the farm like his father. By age 13, John Paul began a seven-year apprenticeship with a merchant shipper out of Whitehaven, England, just across Solway Firth. The youngster's dreams of adventure came true on his first-ever voyage, taking him across the Atlantic, first to Barbados, and then Virginia, on board the Friendship. He was even able to visit his older brother William in Fredericksburg, Virginia, for several months. When Jones returned to Whitehaven, he learned that his boss, John Younger, had released him from his apprenticeship due to his failing business. Two years later, at age 17, he again found employment in Whitehaven, this time as the third mate on the slave ship King George. After spending two years as a third mate, he was transferred to the brigantine Two Friends out of Kingston, Jamaica. It was a smaller vessel, only 50 feet in length, with only six crew and could carry 77 enslaved people. John Paul was disgusted by what he observed, calling it, quote, an abominable trade. He resigned after only a few voyages and arranged passage home on a new ship, the John, 
out of Kirkubri, Scotland. During his voyage home, the captain of the John, as well as the first mate, died of illness. John Paul took command as the only qualified officer on board and safely navigated the ship to Scotland. The owners of the John, Curry Beck and Company, were so impressed that John Paul was made master of the ship for its next voyage to the Americas. He was additionally given the position of supercargo, which put him in charge of buying and selling cargo at profitable rates. At the young age of 21, John Paul was already a captain. He relished this role and believed he should look the part. The young captain dressed impeccably, with not a thread out of place. At just 5 feet 5 inches, he was not a large man, but carried himself as a gentleman. He was known to enjoy the company of the ladies, and some took to calling him the dandy captain. But soon, he also developed a reputation as a man with a temper. During his second voyage to the West Indies aboard the John, he was accused of excessive flogging by the ship's carpenter, a man named Mungo Maxwell. Maxwell had been flogged for disobedience and complaining about his wages. Flogging was a common practice on a ship, but Maxwell claimed the punishment with a cat of nine tails was unnecessarily cruel. Maxwell filed a complaint against John Paul in Tobago and presented his scarred back as evidence. The vice admiralty court dismissed the charges, describing the flogging as neither mortal nor dangerous. Refusing to go home on the Paul, Maxwell arranged passage back to Scotland aboard another ship, the Barcelona Packet. But he died of yellow fever during the voyage. When the ship arrived in Scotland, Mungo Maxwell's father, Robert Maxwell, discovered his son was dead. Pointing to the horrible wounds on his son's back, an arrest warrant for murder was issued for Captain John Paul on the 10th of November, 1770. He was arrested and put in the Talbooth Jail in Kirkibri and released on bail with the condition he go and find evidence to clear his name. The regional governor encouraged John Paul to leave Scotland and change his name, as Mungo Maxwell was not a lowly sailor, but an adventurer from a prominent family with an influential father. John Paul did leave Scotland, returning to Tobago on the 30th of June, 1772, to gather evidence to defend himself. He was able to obtain an affidavit from the judge of the vice-admiralty court, exonerating him of the charges and an affidavit from Captain John Eastman of the Barcelona Packet, which stated Maxwell was in good health when he boarded his ship and never complained of being injured by John Paul. Not risking a return to Scotland, John Paul went to London and sent his defense documents to his mother in Kirkbean, who delivered them to officials in Kirkibri. This was enough to have him acquitted. The young captain was shaken by this incident, and he was concerned his reputation and his career would be damaged. But soon enough, he signed on with the London-based ship Betsy as the ship's captain. The Betsy was a trade ship operating between England, Ireland, Madeira, and Tobago. The 22-gun West Indiaman was involved in the speculation of commodities in Tobago. Captain Paul established a partnership with Archibald Stewart, a local merchant and planter in Tobago. Stewart was a descendant of King Robert III of Scotland and the son of the third baronet of Blackhall. This partnership proved extremely lucrative for John Paul. His good fortunes would soon take a turn for the worse. After returning to Tobago in October of 1773, he had a dispute with one of his crew over wages. Some of the crew were local to Tobago and wished to stay on the island, despite signing up for a round trip from London. When they demanded their wages paid, the captain refused, citing his obligations to purchase cargo for the return trip. 
The dispute escalated, and the leader of the men rushed John Paul with a weapon. The captain killed the man with his sword. He reported the incident immediately, claiming self-defense, describing the man as, quote, a prodigious brute of thrice my strength. Lieutenant Governor of Tobago, Sir William Young, informed Jones that he might be charged with murder, and perhaps he should disappear for the time being. It seems the captain and the lieutenant governor had a connection, being from the same area near Kirkbean. John Paul borrowed a horse and rode six miles to the nearby port of Plymouth, leaving all his cargo, assets, and business affairs with Archibald Stewart, save a small amount of cash. He found his way on board a ship bound for America and made his way to his brother's home in Virginia. He wrote to Stewart on numerous occasions, asking for the money he left behind in Tobago plus the money from his cargo and possessions. Despite his pleas, he received nothing. But by this time in 1775, events were shaping up that would change his life and the future of the entire world. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. On the 19th of April, 1775, the battles of Lexington and Concord began the American War of Independence against the Kingdom of Great Britain. For John Paul, this meant trade with Tobago from America ended, along with any hope of attaining his assets. It was at this time, in a new land, and on the run from murder charges, he changed his name first to John Jones, and then finally to John Paul Jones. Letters from Jones during this time indicate that his sentiments were clearly with the colonists. His brother sadly had died by 1775, and Jones desired to leave Fredericksburg. On October 13, 1775, the Continental Congress declared the formation of a Continental Navy, and Jones left for Philadelphia to offer his services. With the endorsement of the prominent Virginia statesman Richard Henry Lee, Jones was commissioned as first lieutenant on board the Alfred on December 7, 1775. At that time, the entire Continental Navy consisted of the Alfred, Columbus, two brigantines, one sloop, and 13 additional frigates that were on the way. On his maiden voyage with the Alfred in February of 1776, Jones was given the honor of raising the first-ever U.S. ensign over a naval vessel. 
Under the command of Commodore Isaac Hopkins, the fleet continued down the American coast, with orders to sail to Virginia. But Hopkins ignored orders, heading instead to the Bahamas. The fleet captured Nassau, raided British military supplies, and captured two prize ships. On their return voyage, two additional ships were captured, the HMS Hawk and the HMS Bolton. On April 6th, the fleet encountered the HMS Glasgow, a sixth-rate, 20-gun dispatch ship of the Royal Navy, under the command of Captain Tryingham Howe. This skirmish off the coast of Rhode Island became known as the Battle of Block Island and was a victory for the small Royal Navy ship. The Glasgow traded broadsides with the American fleet and sustained significant damage, but managed to escape while also inflicting more casualties. The commanders of the American ships were harshly criticized for allowing the Glasgow to escape. Two of the ship's captains were later dismissed. During the battle, Lieutenant John Paul Jones was in charge of the Alfred's guns, and his performance made a good impression. He quickly rose to prominence and was promoted to captain of the Providence. Jones honed his naval warfare skills as his ship served as a convoy escort, transport ship, and supply ship. On September 22, 1776, Jones took the Providence to Conso Harbor off the coast of Nova Scotia. There, he burned two fishing vessels, sank another, and took the Ebenezer and its load of fish as a prize. He continued on to Arashat and Petit de Gras, where a fleet of nine Jerseymen surrendered to him. Jones allowed the crews to keep two of their ships so they could return home, if they assisted in fitting out the remaining ships that he would keep as prizes. But most of these prize ships were lost a few days later when a violent gale struck the area. The successes of his raids and exploits were so respected that he was asked to assist the Continental Congress in establishing naval regulations. In 1777, Jones was given command of the Ranger. He sailed to France, where he was hailed as a hero, and struck up a friendly relationship with Benjamin Franklin, who was stationed in Paris as an American diplomat. Jones told Franklin of his plan to take the war directly to the British mainland, stating, Three fast frigates with tenders might burn Whitehaven and its fleet, rendering it nearly impossible to supply Ireland with coal next winter. He described this as a method to cause inconceivable panic in England. It would convince the world of her vulnerability and hurt her public credit. Franklin agreed that his plan could work, but distanced himself from officially endorsing an act of terrorism. Jones left France and sailed to the Irish Sea, destroying and capturing several small vessels. On April 22, 1978, Jones put his plan into action, leading 31 volunteers in two boats from the Ranger into Whitehaven. Jones sent one boat to set fire to the fort and ships on the north side of the harbor, while he took his boat to the southern fort. Jones captured the southern fort, locking the fort's garrison in their own guardhouse in a bloodless raid. After spiking the fort's cannons, Jones returned to his boat, where his men were preparing to set fire to the fort but he found the other boat had returned, claiming their candles had gone out. To his frustration, the men from his own boat claimed theirs had gone out as well. In fact, some of the men participating in this raid had no interest in burning the forts or ships. A sailor named David Freeman decided to use the opportunity to desert and flee into Whitehaven. He woke up the residents to warn them of the attack. Several others abandoned their duties and strolled into the local pub and helped themselves. In the midst of a dangerous raid, Jones had a small mutiny on his hands. No doubt, some of his crew felt loyalty to Great Britain 
and had no desire to burn an English town. Now aware of the raid, the citizens of Whitehaven began pouring into the streets, some armed with muskets and knives. Jones urged his men to quickly set fire to as many ships as possible. Some of his men wandered around aimlessly, ignoring his orders completely, and the raid was falling apart. Nevertheless, soon one ship was ablaze, and the fire would spread to several others. As Jones and his men departed in their boats, they mockingly fired muskets into the air, despite cannon fire from shore. By 6 a.m., the raiding party were back on board the Ranger. It was a messy affair that did not go as planned, and Jones had to deal with insubordination from some. But he had successfully raided the British mainland, sending his intended message. As the news of the raid spread, it created quite a panic throughout Great Britain. Just as Jones had hoped, troops were summoned to protect the seaside ports and villages. Extra guards and local militia were formed to dissuade any future attacks. The name of John Paul Jones spread across the country like a bogeyman whom parents warn children about. Songs were written about Jones, and newspapers couldn't help but add to the frenzy. Jones was seen as a murderous pirate and traitor. Rumors began spreading about where he would strike next, and additional coastal batteries were constructed in response. The raid on Whitehaven succeeded in causing confusion, panic, and in diverting troops and ships away from the war. The subsequent panic even destabilized the British economy to some degree due to uncertainty of where the next attack would take place. For his part, Jones was disappointed that more of Whitehaven was not destroyed. But despite what the people of Great Britain thought of him, Jones stated of the raid, he was, quote, pleased that in this business we neither killed nor wounded any person. He went on to say, what was done, however, is sufficient to show that not all their navy can protect their own coasts, and the scenes of distress which they have occasioned in America may be soon brought home to their own door. Back in America, word of the raid sparked vast exaggerations, some even stating Jones burned every ship on the harbor, both forts, in the entire town. The report received by the British Admiralty matched what Jones himself claimed. One ship was fired, and it spread to others, destroying approximately six ships. Following the raid, Jones sailed to Kirkubri, Scotland, near his birthplace. His new plan was to kidnap the Earl of Selkirk and exchange him for imprisoned American sailors. Upon his arrival at the Earl's residence, he informed the butler that he and his men were a British press gang. The Earl, however, was nowhere to be found. Jones himself preferred to depart, but his men insisted on looting the mansion. Jones agreed to allow them only to take the family silver. With booty in hand and no hostage, Jones set out to seek more ships to sink or capture. The following day, the ranger encountered HMS Drake, a 20-gun sloop off the coast of Carrickfergus in Northern Ireland. The ships faced off in a fierce battle, lasting over an hour. Captain Burden of the Drake was killed, along with his first mate, Lieutenant Dobbs. The remaining crew surrendered to the ranger. By this time, a fleet of ships from Great Britain were now searching for Jones. With prizes in tow and a newfound reputation, Jones returned to France. For the French, who were also at war with Great Britain, Jones was a conquering hero. A French shipping mogul named Jacques Donation Loret gave Jones a French East Indiaman, the Duc de Dora, which Jones had refit into a warship. He renamed this ship the Bonhomme Richard, 
to honor his friend Benjamin Franklin. The name is in reference to Franklin's popular Poor Richard's Almanac, which was sold in France under the title Les Maximes de Bonhomme Richard. On the 14th of August, 1779, Jones was given command of a fleet of seven ships and set out for the Irish Sea from France to disrupt British commerce. He guided the fleet around Ireland and Scotland, pulling into the Firth of Forth at Leith Harbour on the 16th of September. Legend has it, the owner of a mansion on the north shore of the Firth, named Sir John Anstruther, feared the pirate Jones might attack and readied his cannon. After discovering he had no powder, he sent his yacht out to the nearby HMS Romney to borrow a keg of powder. Ironically, the yacht approached the Bonhomme Richard, believing it to be the HMS Romney, and asked for the gunpowder. Jones asked questions about coastal defenses, and in exchange for information, he provided the gunpowder. In fact, Jones was set to launch another raid, but a vicious gale forced him out of the Firth, and the plan was scrapped. On the 23rd of September, 1779, Jones and his small squadron encountered a merchant fleet off Flamborough Head in Yorkshire and moved to engage. This drew out two ships of the line, the HMS Serapis and the Countess of Scarborough, while the merchant ships ducked back into shore. As Jones approached, he was hailed by the enemy commander. In response, the Bonhomme Richard fired a whole broadside. A shout rang out. It's Jones! Jones the pirate, coming to murder us all. The Battle of Flamborough Head was underway. Cannon fire erupted from the opposing ships, and the Bonhomme Richard faced off with Captain Richard Pearson of the Serapis. In a later report, Jones wrote, The battle being thus begun was continued with unremitting fury. Every method was practiced on both sides to gain an advantage and rake each other. And I must confess, that the enemy ship being much more manageable than the BHR, gained thereby, several times, an advantageous situation, in spite of my best endeavors to prevent it. As I had to deal with an enemy of greatly superior force, I was under the necessity of closing with him, to prevent the advantage which he had over me in point of maneuver. Jones was outmatched by his opponent's newer and superior ship. He skillfully attempted to pull up close to the Serapis, but was thwarted by his less agile ship. When the bowsprit of the Serapis came over the poop deck of the Bonhomme Richard, Jones brilliantly fastened it to his mizzenmast. The rigging of the ships became entangled, and the starboard anchor of the Serapis caught on the Bonhomme Richard's stern. The ships swung together alongside and were inseparable. So close were the ships that their cannon were touching the broadside of the other. The 12-pound guns of the Bonhomme Richard were quickly knocked out of action and were abandoned. Two aging 18-pound guns proved no better, exploding upon first being fired, killing the gun crews. The inexperience of the Americans and French volunteers was showing. Jones's men sustained heavy casualties, and the fight looked hopeless. Jones himself was forced to take over the three 9-pound guns on the quarterdeck, as its commander had been badly wounded. He rallied his men, quickly forming crews and firing at the enemy. Jones blasted his cannon with double-headed shot, attempting to take down his enemy's mainmast. The other two nine-pounders were loaded with grapeshot and canister, and they raked the enemy's muskets and deck personnel. Gun crews whose cannons had been taken out of action reinforced the topside guns and soon joined in. But the Bonhomme Richard was in trouble. The main guns of the Serapis fired at will, taking out all the main deck guns of the Bonhomme Richard. 
The damage was severe enough to cause the ship to take on water. Fearing their ship was sinking, the ship's carpenter, chief gunner, and master-at-arms panicked. They frantically ran to haul down the colors, signaling the ship's surrender. But they were unable to do so because the flag had already been shot to pieces. Desperate, they shouted, Quarter, please, for God's sake, quarter, to the British commander. To the surprise of Jones, three of his officers were surrendering his ship without the authority to do so. Furious, Jones walloped one of the men with his pistol, knocking him unconscious. The other two men disappeared in the confusion and avoided his wrath. Captain Pearson of the Serapis hailed Jones, asking if he had struck, asking if he was requesting quarter. What happened next is a source of controversy. American children are taught that Jones replied by saying, I have not yet begun to fight. But this almost certainly is untrue. This particular quote was not written about until 1825, 46 years after the event. Jones himself wrote of this incident. The English Commodore asked me if I demanded quarters, and I answered him in the most determined negative. Later, Jones claimed he might have said, I'll be damned before I'll strike, or I may sink, but I'll be damned if I strike. But why let a little exaggeration get in the way of a good story? Whatever the exact words, Jones most certainly declined to strike his colors. He was determined to force Pearson to surrender. Thus far, the other American ships had not participated in the battle. When the battle began, the Alliance and Palace ignored the call to form a line of battle, leaving the Bonhomme Richard alone to face the two Royal Navy ships. Captain Pierre Landais of the Alliance had a number of disagreements with Jones previously and seemingly was using this battle as a chance to get back at him. Two hours into the battle, the Alliance finally approached. With the extra help, Jones would win the day. But Landais fired a broadside directly into the Bonhomme Richard, and he continued firing. Jones did not mince words about the intent of Landais, writing, There was no possibility of his mistaking the enemy's ship for the BHR, there being the most essential difference in their appearance and construction. Besides, it was then full moonlight. Every tongue cried that he was firing into the wrong ship, but nothing availed. He passed around, firing into the BHR's head, stern, and broadside, and by one of his volleys killed several of my best men and mortally wounded a good officer on the forecastle. But the Alliance was also doing damage to the Serapis. Captain Pearson later wrote, The largest of the two frigates kept sailing round us during the whole action and raking us fore and aft, by which means they killed or wounded almost every man on the quarter and main decks. With his ship sinking and now on fire, Jones was hit with more bad news. His master-at-arms, who already had attempted to surrender the ship, released the roughly 100 prisoners from the ship's hold, who had been captured from their prize ships. At this moment, it appeared Jones was beaten. But the prisoners didn't attack. The guns, fire, smoke, flooding, and confusion had them fearing for their lives, and they were scurrying about the ship. The quick-thinking Jones ordered the prisoners to man the pumps, and they obeyed. Rather than fight, the prisoners were now hard at work saving his ship. The battle raged on for three and a half hours. Jones ordered many of his sailors and marines into the rigging during the desperate fight. 
A Marine with a bucket full of grenades bravely climbed out on the edge of the rigging and tossed a well-placed grenade into the Serapis. Captain Pearson later described, At half past nine, either from a hand grenade being thrown in at one of our lower deck ports or other accident, a cartridge of powder was set on fire, and the flames running from cartridge to cartridge all the way aft blew up the whole of the people and officers that were quartered abaft the mainmast, from which unfortunate circumstance all those guns were rendered useless for the remainder of the action, and I fear the greatest part of the people will lose their lives. The mainmast of the Serapis began to shake, and the ship fell silent. Jones watched as the British colors were struck. After the prolonged battle was through, he discovered the palace had in fact joined the attack and defeated the Countess of Scarborough. The Bonhomme Richard, however, was sinking and beyond repair. The men of the Bonhomme Richard were transferred to the Serapis, and they watched the Bonhomme Richard slip beneath the waves. Jones lost somewhere between 100 and 200 men, and his ship, but he won the battle. The American fleet sailed to the island of Teschel in the Netherlands and presented his prize ships to the French. The British commanders were court-martialed by the Royal Navy, but honorably acquitted. Back in France, Jones was given a gold sword and awarded the Order of Military Merit from Louis XVI, as well as the title of Chevalier, which he liked very much and preferred to use this title. Jones returned to America in 1781, where he was awarded a gold medal imprinted with his likeness by the Continental Congress and given a formal vote of thanks for his accomplishments overseas. He spent the remainder of the war advising Congress and establishing naval training procedures. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Following the war, Jones returned to France to collect the prize money from his captured ships. While in France, he made the acquaintance of a woman by the name of Mrs. Townsend, who bore him a son. Thomas Jefferson was serving as the American ambassador to France at the time, and he recommended Jones to the Russian Navy. In 1788, Jones was made Rear Admiral by Russian Empress Catherine II, a higher rank than he achieved in the American Navy. He became known as Contra Admiral Pavel Ivanovich Jones and served for two years in the Black Sea during the Russo-Turkish War. Once again, Jones distinguished himself, this time at the Battle of Liman. After scouting the Turkish fleet in a small rowboat during the night, he successfully fended off repeated Turkish assaults, reportedly killing 3,000 Turks 
sinking 15 vessels, and taking over 1,600 prisoners, while only losing one frigate and 18 sailors. Jones wrote of the battle, I am delighted with the courage of the Russians, which is more glorious because it is without show-off. The Russian empress awarded Jones with the Order of St. Anne, a distinguished military honor. But controversy and legal trouble once again plagued John Paul Jones when he was accused of molesting a 10-year-old girl in St. Petersburg, a charge he fiercely denied. The charges were dropped in 1789, and after a meeting with Empress Catherine, Jones left Russia and never returned. Jones returned to Paris following his Russian service, setting himself up in an apartment on the Rue de Tournon. He was a celebrity in Paris, well-respected, and women admired him greatly. But Jones was in poor health, and he spent his days writing letters to Empress Catherine and his two sisters back in Scotland. The two women were estranged, and he desperately wished for them to make amends. He also continued petitioning the French Minister of Marine for money owed to the crew of the Bonhomme Richard. Jones sat down in his chair at home on the 18th of July, 1792, suffering greatly from kidney disease and edema. There, he dictated his will to Governor Morris, the U.S. Minister Plenipotentiary to France. As a side note, Governor was the man's actual name and not a title. When finished with the will, Morris departed Jones's apartment for a dinner engagement, planning to return later in the evening. Upon his return at 8 p.m., he found John Paul Jones lying dead, face down on his bed. The cause of death was determined to be pneumonia. The man known as the Terror of the English was just 45 years old. The captain's death was reported to the French National Assembly by his close friend, Colonel Samuel Blackton. In his letter, he expressed his extreme displeasure at the manner in which Governor Morris had requested Jones be interred, which he described as, in the most private manner and at the least possible expense. The treatment of Jones also enraged Pierre-Francois Simonot, the commissary of King Louis XVI, who said, A man who has rendered such signal services to France and America ought to have a public burial, and he offered to pay for the burial himself if America wouldn't. In fact, he did pay for the funeral, shelling out a hefty sum of 462 francs to bury the captain. On July 20, 1792, at Saint-Louis Cemetery in Paris, Simonot, Blackton, and a score of others attended the burial of John Paul Jones, and a Dutch pastor provided the eulogy. The service concluded with a musket volley from a detachment of grenadiers before the lead coffin was lowered into the grave. Six months following the burial, Paris officials closed the Saint-Louis Cemetery. The property fell into disrepair and was used as a garbage dump for a time. Eventually, the land was sold to private owners, who built houses, hotels, and a laundry on the land. The grave of John Paul Jones was lost and forgotten. For over a hundred years, his grave lay undisturbed. In 1897, a former American Civil War general by the name of Horace Porter was appointed as ambassador to France, and he made it his business to find the American revolutionary hero, writing, I felt a deep sense of humiliation as an American citizen in realizing that our first and most fascinating naval hero had been lying for more than a century in an unknown and forgotten grave. From 1899 to 1905, Porter worked with local officials in Paris, negotiated with property owners, and arranged for excavation. 
900 feet of shafts and tunnels were excavated, and on March 31, 1905, the grave of John Paul Jones was found. When the coffin was opened, they found the body wrapped in linen, and the coffin was once filled with alcohol. Forensic tests proved it was Jones, and the remarkably well-preserved face still matched the imprinted likeness on his gold medal. A photograph of the exhumed body can be viewed on this episode's page on shipwrecksandseadogs.com. On July 6, 1905, a procession of 500 U.S. sailors and a French regiment paraded down the Champs-Élysées behind the horse-drawn casket containing Jones's body, covered by an American flag. John Paul Jones was returned to the United States, and in 1913 he was entombed in a marble and bronze sarcophagus in the U.S. Naval Academy Chapel in Annapolis, Maryland. On occasions where the sarcophagus is open to the public, a United States Marine stands at attention as an honor guard. The inscription on his tomb reads, He gave our Navy its earliest traditions of heroism and victory. In 1912, a stone monument to Jones with a 10-foot bronze statue was erected in Potomac Park in Washington, D.C., near the National Mall. It is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. In 1999, the town of Whitehaven held a public ceremony and gave John Paul Jones an honorary pardon. John Paul Jones is called the father of the American Navy, although several others have also been given that title, including John Adams, the second president of the United States. Jones was adored by the French and Empress Catherine II of Russia, while in Great Britain, he was considered a terrorist, traitor, pirate, and overall scoundrel. His legal troubles plagued him for much of his life, and his temper and ego frequently caused him problems. And the quote famously attributed to him, I have not yet begun to fight, is almost certainly apocryphal. Nevertheless, his skill as a navigator and naval tactician cannot be denied, and his achievements were many. In the United States, Captain John Paul Jones is still remembered as a hero of the American Revolution. That's going to do it for the story of John Paul Jones. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, goodpods.com, or podchaser.com. It's free to do, means a lot to me, and only takes a moment of your time. I would really appreciate it. Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is written, edited, and produced by me, Rich Napolitano. Episodes, images, and sources can be found on shipwrecksandseadogs.com, and you can follow the show at Shipwrecks Pod on social media. Original theme music is by Sean Siegfried, and you can follow him on YouTube at Sean Secret or on the web at sean.siegfried.se. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, don't forget to wear your life jackets. Once again, I'd like to thank Rich Napolitano of the Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs podcast for his episode today about John Paul Jones. You can learn more about the Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs podcast at shipwrecksandseadogs.com. You can also learn more about our cooperative Into History Network at intohistory.com. I hope you will enjoy both. Well, that's all for this week. Be sure to join us again next week for a regular episode of the American Revolution podcast.